The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, if you haven't found it yet, as you can see on the screen, page 920 and 921 in your pew Bible will put you in Jonah chapter 2. In your copy of God's Word, you'll want the Bible open. We'll be looking at Jonah chapter 2 primarily. Last Sunday, we began the book of Jonah, titling our first sermon, Running from God. Today, our second sermon is titled, Crying Out to God. I think we get the message of this book right here in the middle of it. And yet, even though it's staring us right in the face, as it was for Jonah, it'd be kind of easy to miss it. I mean, if a prophet stumbled over the meaning, surely we could stumble over it too. Here's the message. God's grace. This is what Jonah will show with incredible detail and discernment through four chapters. And yet God's grace is so counterintuitive that it's easy for us to mistrust it or even misunderstand it. And so in Jonah 1, 2, 3, and 4, we're seeing God's grace. Now, every book of the Bible will teach us things about sin and sins about grace. But here's what I think Jonah's contribution is on those two categories so far. In Jonah, sin is running away from God. And in Jonah, grace is God running after sinners. And here we see in Jonah 2, the depths, the width, the height, and the length of God's amazing grace. And if the Apostle Paul had to tell us that we need the Holy Spirit to help us grasp it, and we need to pray for it, and if Jonah is still wrestling with it, don't you think some of us in the room this morning have blind spots in our grasp of the true riches of God's grace? Think of God's grace this way this morning. As I described it at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, picture God's grace as this infinite, beautiful mansion And all of us begin indigent outside of that mansion. And yet God welcomes us in. Some of us this morning, what we need to do is that decisive beginning of God's grace where we receive it. But others of us who are Christians, who are in the mansion, are still learning over a lifetime that there are doors that open in new hallways and new floors and new depths in the contours of God's amazing grace. And Jonah 1 through 4 shows us that. In fact, Colossians 1 tells us how we receive God's grace. It's an amazing statement. In verse 3, he says, you've heard the truth, the gospel. But then in verse 7, he says this, the gospel has borne fruit when, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Understanding it in truth, truly, is what causes it to bear fruit in our lives and grow in our lives. And so I think today's passage is intended to help us greater understand the riches of God's grace in truth. So the sermon title is Crying Out to God. Let's begin in Jonah 2 verse 1, and we'll now look carefully at the word of God. And first we'll see Jonah's desperate prayer and God's response. So look in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. 
in the original grammar. All these verbs are in the intensive stem. So this is him praying as fervently as somebody can pray. He's praying passionately because he's praying from the brink of death. Look in verse 2. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. I know Sheol can mean different things in the Bible, but very likely here he means on the brink of death, I cried. I cried from the worst distress. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you know how this distress was caused. It is self-inflicted distress. God has given the word of the Lord to Jonah, commissioned him to send him. And Jonah has spent as much money as he had to go as far away as he could to stubbornly resist the Lord's will. So two questions immediately come to mind for me. First, why would Jonah pray now? I think the answer is because when the stubborn path of selfishness leads to its inevitable end, which is death, you have a moment, perhaps, of clarity. But there's another question that is so fair to ask at this point. Will God answer him? I mean, Jonah has resisted him and run away from him and done everything he can humanly to oppose God. Will God answer someone like that? And look in verse 2. And he answered me. I hope you just pause and worship there for a second. This is how God responds to people who oppose him and yet cry out to him. God answered me. Out of the belly of a Sheol of his own making, God heard my voice. Why should God respond to someone like Jonah? The answer is he shouldn't. And yet he does because God's grace is greater than our sin. See, even though Jonah's circumstances are self-inflicted, God's grace is greater. So let's start trying to define grace. Let's begin by defining it this way. From just these first two verses, here's my definition. What is grace? Grace is favor granted to an undeserving person from an unobligated giver. Grace is goodness or kindness or favor granted to an undeserving person from an unobligated giver. I'm going to give you three test cases And you tell me if you think they're grace based on the definition we just saw from verse 1 and 2. Test case number one. An employer pays his employees a fair wage. Does that meet the definition of grace we just gave? Yes or no? No. All right, here's a second test case. A Sunday school teacher has taught for many years. He's beloved by his class. He decides that it's time for him to retire. He's going to stay in the church, but he's no longer going to teach. The class decides to get together and collaborate to buy him a wonderful gift. Is that grace, according to the definition we just gave? No. Because though they're not obligated, he's worthy of it. All right, now here's the third test case. You have an awful neighbor. He blows his leaves on your side of the lawn. (laughs) He plays his music far too loud. His language is consistently cruel and vulgar to your wife and to your children. One day when your children are in the backyard jumping on the trampoline, he calls the police to make a noise complaint. And then despite this, you dutifully rake the extra leaves. You speak to him in kindness. And over the years as he becomes sick, 
You run errands for him. You schedule appointments for him. And you're right there through all of it. Is that grace? Yes. Because it's an undeserved person and an unobligated giver. Now, brothers and sisters, please hear what I'm about to say. Christians can slowly forget the definition of grace. Jonah is a believer. But don't you know, sometimes as believers, we start to think, well, I deserve a little. I mean, isn't he a little obligated to me? And when you start to be fuzzy on what grace is, you forfeit it from flowing into your life as a believer. Over the years, you start to think, well, I've really grown. I've really served. I've really obeyed. I've really done. No, brother, sister. Grace is favor on an undeserved person from an unobligated giver. And as Jonah starts to comprehend this, it shakes his whole theology. He doesn't grasp it all in chapter 2, but it starts to shatter paradigms, and it becomes a great breakthrough. Perhaps for you this morning, you'll experience the disorienting, paradigm-shattering grace of God by grasping its true depths again even though, like Jonah, we still have much learning to do. Now, in Jonah 2, Jonah's prayer is one that some scholars struggle with so much that scholars that I respect a lot, like John Walton or Daniel Timmer, have written extensively, as have others, that they actually think Jonah chapter 2 is just a prayer of selfishness. They don't think in Jonah 2, Jonah is praising God. They think in Jonah 2, Jonah is merely complaining again. They argue this for a couple of reasons. First, they argue that Jonah doesn't get specific enough about confessing his sin, so it must not really be praise. And the other thing they argue is, well, come on, in, in chapter 4, he blows up in anger again. Surely this can't actually be praise in chapter 2. There's so much that I've written. Let me give you two quick reasons why I don't follow that minority recent position. I still stick with the traditional, more widely held position that this is praise, and here are two reasons why. First, as you'll notice in, in Jonah chapter 2, this is no longer prose, this is poetry. And in poetry, you intentionally are speaking in a way that's specific, but also general. So, of course, you wouldn't confess sin in the same way you would if it was a record of prose. But here's the second one, and this one's very relevant for you and I. Is it not possible for a Christian to start to turn the right way and then four steps later, faceplant? Yes, it is. And that is why this is such good news for you and I. Because Christian, what do we do after we faceplant? And this is where this passage is helpful. You see, grace even has growing pains. Now we're going to see this in the passage as we continue, God's grace is so great that he answers unworthy prayers and he hears unworthy voices. So I don't want you to get confused as we go through the prayer. Let me explain this one part of it, okay? Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 is a prayer of praise, but in it he records the prayer of deliverance that he prayed to be rescued. 
So don't confuse those as we go through them. Now let's begin in verse 3, and we're going to go more slowly. Jonah's going to detail the feeling of drowning beneath God's presence, but he does it in poetry for this reason. Though he is specifically describing the experience of drowning, he's also spiritually describing the experience of stubbornly rejecting God. So throughout the verses, you should think, can I relate to this feeling? Can I relate to this experience? Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And the first question I had when I read this verse is Jonah said, you cast me? Why is Jonah saying that God cast him into the sea? Don't you remember in chapter 1, Jonah in self-stubborn resignation told the sailors to throw him over so that he would die. And yet now Jonah says that was God's work. But why would he say that? Well, I think you're helped if you look at the end of verse 3. Notice how he describes the waves and the billows. Those are God's too. So what is Jonah saying? Jonah's pointing out that though his circumstances are self-inflicted, God has a sovereign purpose for them. Martin Luther commented on this verse 500 years ago, and here's what he wrote. Jonah does not say the waves and the billows of the sea went over me. He says thy waves and thy billows went over me because Jonah knew that the sea waves and billows were the servants of God and his corrective punishment. See, what Jonah's describing is something all of us have experienced when we sin. David describes it this way in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4. When I covered or hid my sin, your hand was heavy upon me day and night. Now, in Jonah's case, God's hand was literally rather heavy as he was drowning, but it was also psychologically heavy, spiritually heavy. Can you relate? Can you relate to knowing I'm not living the way God wants me to live and I'm trying to hide it, but I can feel God's hand on me. I can feel his pressure squeezing me, trying to get a hold of my heart. In Jonah's case, this is happening as he's sinking in the ocean. Verse 3, he's drowning. And God is saying through the waves, stop fighting me, Jonah. Now verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Can't you picture him floating deeper and deeper underneath the waves? Bubbles of air climbing to the top as pressure snakes in around his body. And yet, you know what happens when you're driving yourself away from God and then you realize you could lose everything? Then you have this moment of, But God, I don't want to lose a relationship with you. That's why in verse 4 he continues by saying, Yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. Don't you know, Christian, haven't you run far enough from God before that right when you thought, I'm done with all this, there's this moment of, oh, but I can't. I can't. I can't be done with God. I know I need him. But then Jonah thinks, well, maybe it's still too late. Look in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. In the original, this is very strong, intensive verbs that are personified. It's, it's as if God is moving them to squeeze his body. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. You see him sinking and sinking and sinking, and the pressure is greater and greater and greater. And then verse 6, at the roots 
of the mountains. He's describing the very bottom of the sea. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is now describing a point where he feels like he's beyond help and beyond the reach that God has. Can you relate? That last phrase, whose bars close upon me forever, has theologians a little puzzled. I mean, it's poetry. It's meant to be metaphorical. But, but what exactly is he maybe referring to in this analogy? Is, is it again talking about Sheol being on the brink of death? Or is it maybe talking about the fish who swallows him? It's not clear. But the point is clear. This was the end until it wasn't. Look at the end of verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. There's so many wonderful scriptures that describe our condition, but then there's a turning point when they say, but God. And here it is in verse 6. Yet God brought me up. I'm suffocating and I'm surrounded by self-inflicted circumstances and the immense pressure of God's sovereign hand. And yet my stubbornness finally broke and God brought me up. And look in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord. See, God knows how to reach each one of his individual people. And he knows what it takes to bring us to a point where we cry out to God. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that all suffering is self-inflicted. The book of Job makes that very clear. But some suffering is. Some suffering is because I'm resisting God and rejecting God and pushing away God. And God is trying to say, hey, stop fighting me. Turn back to me. Remember me. In fact, the word in verse 6, I think, is the most important. Look in verse 6. At the root of the mountains, I went down. Have you been tracing that theme? The word down has been the descriptive word of Jonah's entire route ever since he turned away from God. Peter Craigie points out that he went down to Joppa, down into a ship, down into the lower part of a ship, and now down even further to the depths of the sea. Jonah's life is going down, down, down because God is stripping him from his buoyant self-sufficiency. You see, sometimes we have fatal character flaws that we don't know we have until we go down low enough for the radical work of God to begin. This is a phenomenon everybody understands. J.K. Rowling, famous author, spoke for Harvard's commencement address in 2008, and she said this, My life has, had been a failure on an epic scale. After an exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless, I finally began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. But had I had success somewhere else, I never would have finished the work in the arena in which I thought I truly belonged. Now, countless Christians have had a similar experience. Of it, it didn't turn until they went low enough and failed deep enough. But shouldn't we expect this? Because Jesus said, you have to lose your life before you can find it. Now, if Jonah 
is pushing his own life down. Notice who brought his life up. Verse 6. You brought up my life, O Lord my God. It's not a small thing for Jonah to now call God his God. His life was going down, 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 and now it's finally going up. And here's what I want to point out to you. Jonah 1, 3, and 4 are the action parts of the book. We all love those parts of the book because there's this quick narrative happening. And sometimes people get bored in chapter 2 because it's this long poetry. But chapter 2 is great because the narrative halts so that Jonah can be still and know that God is God. That's a great thing in life when the action stops so that you can see God clearly. Jonah's now praying because he now realizes what he would be apart from God's grace. So now I'm ready to add to our nuance. Ready? Here's what I define grace as. Grace is favor given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. But now let me add our first principle of grace. The height of God's grace is greater than the depth of man's sin. Here's Jonah going as deep as he can, but you can't go beyond God's upward grace. So let me just say to you this morning, call out for it. It doesn't matter how far you are. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. God's grace is higher than the depths of our sin. So call out for it. But let me ask you this. Do you have a prayer of deliverance? Can you say, I was this, and then God brought me up? Surely every Christian has a testimony like that. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the blissful shore, the hymn writer put it. And yet love lifted me. Now, verses 7 through 9, Jonah turns his testimony outward. And this is pretty common in poetry. A lot of the Psalms go like this. Here's what God did in my life. But then the last few verses of a Psalm say, and here's what he'll do for you. And that's what verses 7, 8, and 9 do. They say, now here's what he'll do for you. And there are actually three things, I think. I think each verse is a step. So I think verse 7 is the first step. Remember the Lord. How can you receive God's grace? Remember the Lord. Verse 7. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. That last phrase, my prayer came to you into your holy temple is so important because Jonah is as far away from the temple as a person can get. But God can hear your prayer anywhere. And the temple is the representation in his day of the very presence, the very heart of God. Though he was as far as you can go, God heard him. This is so important for us to know because as believers, we too, as the hymn writer put it, are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's what we do when we're wandering. First, we remember the Lord. But now second, verse 8, we return to the Lord. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. There's an interesting translation variable here, how you handle the particular word, if it's a subject or an object. Here's essentially what the two options are. If you have the NASB in front of you, then it says this, they forsake 
their faithfulness. So a handful of translations describe verse 8 as something that we have failed to do. We have failed to be faithful if we are idolatrous. That's possible. That's taken the genitive subjectively. The other option, which is far more widely attested by older translations like the Latin Vulgate, the Greek Septuagint, and a lot of the historic translations, and it's here in the ESV, is that it's describing that when we choose idolatry, then that causes us to lose out on the gracious, steadfast love of God that he wants to give us. Ultimately, the distinction makes no difference. In either case, the point is idolatry is an obstacle to God's grace in our life. So let's pause then to understand what idolatry is. We don't know for sure what Jonah is thinking in verse 8. The most immediate idolatry he would probably think of are the pagans around him. As we will read throughout the book, he has a low view of them. But hopefully at least there's a beginning of a sense in Jonah's mind that there is idolatry of a more subtle and insidious nature, idolatry of the heart. I think we can describe it this way. Idolatry is anything that you exalt above God. That you say, because of this, I don't need to follow God. I don't need to obey God. I need this more. Let me give you a couple examples. Let's say you have a relationship romantically with someone else, and you know that it's unbiblical. Everything about it is unbiblical. And you know it should stop. But you don't want it to stop. Because in your heart, you tell God, I need this. I receive affection in this that you could never give me. That's idolatry. Or let's say in your workplace, there's an unethical practice that your fellow employees require you to do. You know it's wrong. But you think to yourself, I've worked so hard to get here. I'm finally in the inner ring. I need that. God could never give me that. So you know what, God? No. I'm going to do this anyway. Or imagine you have a relationship that's fractured. And I know forgiveness is a complex thing. But you know that God wants us to be willing to forgive. But what if you tell God, no, I'm not going to. I like the way it feels to be in conflict. And I don't want to risk this pain again. So I will not forgive. That's idolatry. Idolatry is any time that we tell God, no, I could never get from you what I think I've found here. Therefore, I'm putting this above you, at least in this area. Jonah's stubbornness is surely equally as idolatrous as the pagan nations he's so quick to condemn. And God is finally showing him what actually is in his heart. Verse 9, I do think, is a breakthrough, and many commentators think it's the key verse in the book. Verse 9, Jonah finally says, But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And then here are the key words. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Of course, in Jonah's case, that means literally God has just rescued him from the consequences of his own sin, which were death. It also means that God has satisfied a heart that was stubborn. But it probably at least hints at another even additional meaning, which is very important to the book. Salvation is God's call, not Jonah's. Salvation is a divine prerogative, not a human perception. 
Jonah, of course, hasn't nailed this all yet. But this is a breakthrough. I'll quote Smith and Page. They write, In the word, salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah is extolling the work of the Lord as Savior and emphasizing the Lord's sole sovereignty in the area of salvation. So what is grace? Favor granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. The height of God's grace is greater than the depth of man's sin. But now I'll add a second nuance. God's grace is stronger than the resistance of man's stubbornness. God's grace is stronger than the resistance of man's stubbornness. Brother, sister, I'll try to say it to you as simply as I can. If you have ever praised the Lord, you should thank God for that. He has put down your hostility. He has softened your hard heart. Your hostility has been graciously removed by a God who's greater than our stubbornness. That's how great his grace is. And Colossians 1 verse 7 says, From the day you heard it and understood it in truth, it bears fruit. So I want to knuckle down on that second point now. How do we receive grace? And I'm talking to non-Christians and to Christians. How do we receive grace? And as Colossians 1 says, you understand it. That's how you receive it. That sounds too easy, right? (laughs) Let me explain then. Two common inadequate responses to grace that keep it from coming to us. And then the correct response. Here's one. Many people never receive God's grace because they have too low a view of their own sin. They don't need it. I don't need God's grace. I'm not that bad. I would confess if I had something worthy of confessing, but I don't. So I don't need God's grace. These people honestly think something like this. If God's going to give me what I have coming to me, great. That's probably a pat on the back and at least an A minus, you know. That's too low a view of sin. Therefore, you don't receive God's grace. Obviously, the second one, then, is too low a view of God's mercy. These people have a high view of their sin. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done bad things. I know I've run from God. But there's no way God could still have patience for me. There's no way he still has purpose for me. Surely, I am beyond God's grace. No, a right view of grace, truly understanding it, is like both eyes working together to give you proper depth perception. You have a right view of your need and you have a right view of God's grace. We've already seen this in Jonah. Think in chapter one, when the sailors think that they are going to die in a storm. They have tried every available means to get out of that and they have all failed. When they hear the name Yahweh, it clicks for them. We have a need that is so great We cannot meet it, but apparently there's a God whose grace is even greater than our need. Both eyes. Now, I'm going to give away next week a little bit. When Nineveh, and you heard last Sunday how bad the Assyrians really were, when Nineveh hears that God is going to judge them, they do something so un American, they say, You're right. (laughs) We deserve it. We are as bad as you say we are. We deserve to die. We deserve the judgment. That's, that's incredible. They don't argue the point. With that first eye, they see it. Yes, we deserve death. We are that sinful. But then 
they also have the second eye. Maybe God's grace is even greater than our sin. Actually, the only person in the book who struggles seeing it with both eyes is Jonah. But here in chapter 2, he at least gets a glimpse of a two-eyed view of God's grace. Yes, Jonah, even you need God's grace. Even you have sin that causes you to sink to eternal destruction, lest there not be hope in a God whose grace is greater. Let me quote someone who wrote on the book of Jonah so that we can think through the process of grace, even in our own response. Despite Jonah's breakthrough here, Jonah has not yet grasped grace as deeply as we might first think he has. There's still a sense of superiority and self-righteousness that will cause him to explode in anger in chapter 4 when God has mercy on those Jonah sees as his inferiors. Jonah sees the literal idols that the pagans worship, but he fails to see the more subtle idols in his own life. And that keeps him from grasping that he too, just like the heathen, also equally needs God's grace. But God releases Jonah from the fish, even though, as will become obvious soon, Jonah's repentance is only partial. Yet the merciful God patiently works that way with us, flawed and clueless though we are. See, God's grace is even more patient than our progress in it. God is gracious, so stay humble and needy in your progress in it. Now, there's two two verses I haven't touched on yet intentionally. In the Hebrew, they're 2.1 and 2.11. In English, they're 1.17 and 2.10. Let's look at them now. First look at 1.17. These bookend the passage. They're the reason Jonah can even pray a prayer of praise. Because of God's spectacular grace to him, though he was stubbornly opposing him. Look now in 1.17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now look down to 2.10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, here's the question some of you have been hanging on to this entire time. (laughs) Was there a whale in the Mediterranean Sea? How did this all happen? Short answer is, I don't know for sure. But let me make a few comments that hopefully will be helpful to you. The first is, and I've read several of these this week, many people who are historians have compiled newspaper accounts over the centuries of whales that have swallowed people and those people have somehow survived. I think all of that is not helpful. Let me show you simply why it's not helpful. Did you see in verse 117, the Lord appointed... That's the word for God's sovereignty. Did you see in 2.10, the Lord spoke to the fish? What about this seems normal to you? What newspaper account would we say, yeah, God does stuff like this regularly? None, of course. It's obviously a miracle. But as I tried to point out last week, it is so sad that three verses out of 48 in this book become so 
so, so distressing that they become a barrier to so many readers when they forget that in the context, the reason this fish comes is because God is sovereignly gracious to a stubborn, suicidal sinner. G. Campbell Morgan was right when he said, men have looked so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. Let us not do the same. See, this passage shows that God has sparing grace even to believers who are stubborn. You know what else it shows too? God is always a step ahead. So if you're plotting out your plan, he's already got one. He knows how to make sure something's there before you are. But I have great news for you. We won't go into all this, but just look right now in chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Jonah got a second chance. And so by God's mercy, may we. I'm not telling you to presume it. I'm not telling you to chart a path of sin and plan it. I'm telling you that God is so good that everybody sitting around you this morning who's a believer, as nice as they look in their Sunday best, Take them out to lunch and they'll tell you second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh chances God gave them over and over and over. God is so gracious that even when we've blown it, there's hope because God is a step ahead. I can assure you this morning, you have not blown it beyond God's grace. As I said at the beginning, in the contribution of Jonah, sin is running away from God, and grace is God running after sinners. And as my friend said when I baptized him, God is a track star. (laughs) God is not obligated, but he is willing. So let's look again at demonstrations that we know we have God's grace. We know God's grace is at work in our life when we are clearly seeing it with both eyes. Yes, I am a sinner in need of salvation. That message alone is so unpopular. We live in a moment of the triumph of the therapeutic. We are consistently told that the word sin is itself offensive. I mean, you're hurting people's self-esteem. You're putting societal shame on them. Don't we already have too much self-incrimination, we're told? Further, we might be told, well, you know, standards are, are just socially constructed and they're relative. All that matters is how I feel about myself. No, we're all accountable to God, our creator. God sees us all. He tracks the sin of us all, whether Nineveh or a prophet. So when we are self-inflicted in our sinking, we have to have the clear vision to admit, I am a sinner. I do deserve to be separated from God, and I can't fix it. So instead of the self-esteem of our culture, let me give you a, a better way to think about it. The hymn writer wrote it this way, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow All for sin could not atone. And doesn't this sound like Jonah 2, 9? Thou must save and thou alone. So have the first eye. We are sinners. Now have the second eye. God is a savior greater than our sin. 
God gives grace to the undeserving, stubborn sinners. God gives grace even though he's unobligated, he's willing. But do you know how costly grace is? The pursuit is costly. You know what Jesus said when he came to earth? The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. What did it cost him to come? Gives up heaven, gives up glory. God, the eternal Son, the Word became flesh so that he could become crucifiable, killable. And yet it was a joy because we have a Savior who leaves the 99 to pursue the one who rejoices when the lost coin is found, when the lost son is returned. You see, God meets sinners in his son, who is the substitute for them. See, the reason Jonah can be brought up is because Jesus went down. The reason Jonah can be raised is because Jesus bore his death, the one that Jonah escaped. Separation and suffering that we have caused is bridged by Jesus Christ. That is why there is grace for any one of us. So let me ask you in conclusion, where are you today? Have you come inside the mansion of God's amazing grace? Don't stay outside indigent. He welcomes you and the door is his son. Christian, Stop resisting God's word. Stop resisting his will. Stop assuming that maybe you do deserve it. Maybe he is obligated. Be humbled enough to recognize that it's all of grace so that it will flow again. But cry out today, not just in humble desperation, but in confident faith that the height of God's grace is higher than the depth of our sin. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for marvelous grace that is greater than all our sin. Guard us as Christians who've been Christians for decades from the insidious, smug self-righteousness that caused Jonah to be so stubborn because we can start to think that we're better than other people, that we're really living a good life, And when we do that, we are placing an obstacle for the flowing grace that you intend to give to us. So humble us. We have no good beside you. We have no claim. All we have is grace. We thank you for Christ. Perhaps someone this morning, though, is here and they've never put the two eyes together. Maybe today is the day where it clicks. I do have a need that I can't meet. I am a sinner who deserves death. And that actually is true. That really describes me. But there is a Savior greater than my sin. Help them right now to pray, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner, but I take Jesus. Save me through his name. But Lord, help us all to leave praising God who delivered us. In your son's name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. 
For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.